I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day down in Alabama with its vicious racists, with its governor having his lips dripping with the words of interposition and nullification. One day right there in Alabama, little black boys and black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and white girls as sisters and brothers. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day every valley shall be exalted. Every hill and mountain shall be made low. The rough places will be made plain. And the crooked places will be made straight. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together. I have a dream, Martin Luther King. Can you really have a speeches website and podcast without at some stage featuring the greatest speech of all? Many believe it certainly comes top of most polls. And I remember the day I first heard it. I think I was about 11 years old. And I was in a car with my dad. We were driving to an amateur footy game at Melbourne University. And we actually did laps of Parkville because it was playing in its entirety on the ABC. And it was absolutely spellbinding. And uh, we listened right to the end and probably had one of our first conversations about racism and the civil rights movement and the life of Martin Luther King and Dad had been a history teacher and and he explained a lot of it to me. And it's been a life that's fascinated me ever since. And the fact that I started a speeches website is partly to do with the fact of how much I love this speech. And in case your 8 or 10 or 12 or 14 year olds never heard it, I am going to put it up in its entirety at the end of this episode. But first we're going to talk about it with a person who knows as much about Martin Luther King Jr. as anyone on the planet, the person who has organised the King Papers Project since 1985. He's done seven volumes with, with Volume 8 on the way. Dr. Claiborne Carson. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields. If you lay down with dogs, you get fleas. Fraud, sham and hypocrisy. Change within the system. The hollow man of anger and bitterness all must be left to a bygone age. I understand victory! I understand sacrifice! Speak over. I may not get there with you. That we as a people will get to the promised land. Speak Well may we say God save the Queen. Because nothing will save the government yet. Ola with Tony Wilson. Hello, welcome to the Speak Ola podcast. I am Tony Wilson and we're in the second season, second episode, second season and what an episode. I mentioned how much the I Have a Dream speech means to me, but really I'm a white boy in Melbourne hearing it for the first time in 1983. The stakes aren't really as high as they were for someone like Claiborne Carson who was a 19-year-old African-American man 
who'd been brought up in New Mexico, and Dr. Carson made the trip to the March on Washington in 1963 and saw Dr. Martin Luther King speak live. He's going to talk to us today about that experience, and he's also going to talk about the fact that in the aftermath, he became a history professor. And in 1985, he received a call from Coretta Scott King herself, asking whether he would be the founding director of the Martin Luther King Education and Research Centre that was being set up to sort and publish the Martin Luther King Papers Project, the letters, the speeches, the writings of Martin Luther King. And he's been doing that ever since. He's a wonderful speaker. I heard him for the first time on a documentary, I Am MLK Jr., And so I called him and asked whether he'd be a part of the podcast and share his memories, his personal memories of the day, and also the lifetime of work he has done on Martin Luther King and the I Have a Dream speech. Before we get there, I mentioned it last week, but I have put up a donations function on the website and also in the show notes for this podcast. If you do want to help out Speakola and help me out, you can donate. And I think it's a dozen or so people were good enough to do that after the first episode of this year. So thank you very much for that. It helps with paying for the hosting of the website and the transcription of speeches and just a little dent into the thousands of hours of work I've done on this great speeches project. And finally, a thank you to Greenskin and Purpleskin Avocados. Do you know what a ripeness button is? No, I didn't either until I visited the greenskinavocados.com.au avocado love page which shares recipes tips all sorts of ideas for what you and the humble avocado can get up to in the confines of your own kitchen and they told me about the ripeness button don't pick up the avocado and squeeze it madly around the midriff so that you bruise it and turn it into a brown sodden mess just put a thumb gently into the tip and feel whether there's any give there. And then you don't bruise the important yummy middle part of the avocado. Oh, what tips there are on the greenskinavocados.com.au page. Look it up, look them up, and make avocados a part of your life. And now, Dr. Carson. Speakola. Well, what an exciting day for the Speakola podcast. In the world of speeches, there's no bigger or more important name than Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And the man who has spent at least the last 30-odd years studying that life as closely as anyone ever has is Dr. Claiborne Carson. He's the founding director of the Martin Luther King Jr. Research and Education Institute over there in Stanford in San Francisco, Dr. Carson, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Good to be with you. So tell us a little bit about how you came to this job. Well, it was kind of a surprise because I had studied what is called the civil rights movement. I call it the black freedom struggle. But in any case, I'd been studying it all of my professional life. I had been involved in the movement. And so when I became a historian, I uh, soon made the decision that there needed to be a book about the movement. But I wanted to tell the movement story from the bottom up. So I looked at the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, which were the grassroots people. Uh, The way I would explain them is that they thought that King was following them. They thought that they were the 
the vanguard of the movement, and, and he was trying to catch up. I, I felt that there would be enough people to write biographies of Martin Luther King, and I wanted to to tell the story that I experienced was that uh, these were the people taking the lead. And I believe when you were at college yourself, you met Stokely Carmichael, and, and you wrote about him subsequently. Is he, is he one of the people you're talking about there? Yes, exactly. Uh, right before I, I attended the March on Washington, I met uh, Stokely Carmichael, and he was a member of SNCC. In fact, he was representing uh, SNCC at the student conference, uh, National Student Association Conference in Indiana. And going to that conference got me closer to the March on Washington, and I was able to hitch a ride with another group who were going to the march right after the conference. But during the conference, I, I met him, and uh, he was trying to get the National Student Association to support SNCC. So that was his motive for being there. And so we had a chance to talk, and he he kind of put down the idea of going to the march and, and just you know, why are you going to that picnic? You know, uh, there's so many more important things to do, like come and join us. And I remember being very reluctant to tell him that this was the most radical thing I'd done in my life at that point, just going to the march. But it, it, it did give me a sense uh, that these were people who were doing exciting things and, and I wanted to be more like them. Well, Dr. Carson, I've done a little reading on you, and it sounds as though you had an, a childhood that's a whole different story, where, you, where you're raised in Los Alamos around the, the scientific projects down there that were so big a news stories. Tell us a little bit about your childhood. Yes, I grew up in Los Alamos, where the first atomic bomb was built. It was a town of maybe 13,000 people. Nearly all the adults were scientists or technicians or you know, of some sort. The, the only business there was the Los Alamos Scientific Laboratory. It was a town where I was drawn to the sciences. And, you know, actually, when I started college, I was a math major and, and thought of becoming a scientist myself. And it was only after I got to college, and like a lot of people, you find out where your real interests are. And I, I really enjoyed the history courses I took. And that made that decision to, to switch and eventually... Uh, you know, as I got involved in the movement, it, it became a large part of my life. Um, I think my true love was studying history. And you were part of history, this decision to go to the march on Washington or, or the picnic that Stokely Carmichael mentioned. Tell us about that day and, and, and the days leading up. What was happening in America? Tell us about your own decision to go and tell us about the trip. Well, I, I could see that there was something important brewing. I mean, this is, this is a time, I would compare it to, say, last spring, you know, with the Black Lives Matter movement. You, you saw something happening, and it was, it was affecting young people my age. I saw the, the sit-ins and the fact that these are people exactly my age who were, who were leading this movement and the Freedom Rides that came after that. So I, I sensed that it had something to do with my life. It was also, you know, there weren't a lot of black people in, in Los Alamos. I think there were three black families when I, I lived there. So it was, it was also a curiosity about what was happening with other young black people. And, and when I found out that they were doing exciting things, and here I was in New Mexico not doing very exciting things, you know, it was not. It was an easy choice to make. I wanted to get closer to that and and meet some of the people in it. So tell us how you got cross country from Los Alamos to 
the march on Washington? Well, as I said, I, I, I went to this conference, a student conference in Indiana, and uh, from the perspective of New Mexico, Indiana was you know, not that far from Washington. It, it actually was. It took a long bus ride overnight from Bloomington, Indiana to Washington, D.C., and I arrived there early in the morning. I didn't know a single person. You know, I, I went with a group of people from in, Indiana, so I, I didn't know any of them before the bus ride. So I just blended in with the crowd. And I kind of liked that, actually, because it gave me a lot of freedom to wander around and get different perspectives. I would try to get near the, the speaker's stage and, and uh, you know, later on just kind of wander around around the reflecting pool in Washington. And I'd never been to Washington, D.C., so just being there was very exciting. So tell us about the event. Tell us about the speakers and, and other things scheduled for the day. How, how did it unfold before it closed with the I Have a Dream speech? Well, for me, it was like seeing people that I only knew from television, not just the speakers. You know, I'd heard about these civil rights leaders but also the celebrities who were there, the actors and singers and people like Joan Baez, I'd heard of her, and, and uh, seeing Mahalia Jackson and you know, just people like Sidney Poitier. You know, all, all of them I knew about. You're kind of starstruck you know, when you're 19 and, and you know, these are people you've only seen on television and suddenly they're 50 feet away from you. So you do get that sense of, of wonderment. And the speakers, you know, were, I, I was particularly interested in John Lewis because he was the one who was closest to my own age. And he was the one affiliated with the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. So I was very interested in his speech and very proud of him because he was maybe five years older than I was, maybe at, at most. And I was just thinking of how much courage it took for someone to get up before that huge crowd and I, I could imagine you know all that was going through his mind and, and here is a kid from rural Alabama and suddenly he has this huge audience and I, you know I, I remember feeling very proud of him the climax was going to come when Martin Luther King spoke because you know quite, quite frankly everyone including myself was uh, thinking about how do I get out of here you know, and, and how do I beat the crowd? Um, because as soon as he, that's why they put him last. If he had spoken at one o'clock in the afternoon, the crowd would have started drifting away at one o'clock in the afternoon. But everyone wanted to hear Martin Luther King because um, we'd heard about him and we'd heard what a great orator he was. That kept me there until he spoke. And I was like so many other people trying to find the bus to get me home. What was it like being there for this speech live? Was it affected by things like sound quality and speaker distortion? Or was there a sense that, you know, you were a part of history as it happened? You know, I, I remember hearing it quite clearly. You know, so maybe I was just near a speaker. But I, I would imagine the sound system was, was pretty well set up so that it worked for a crowd that size. Yeah, I... I didn't find any problem hearing it. Now, maybe people who were further back in the crowd uh, might have had trouble. And, and then, of course, when he was speaking, the crowd was more quiet. You know, during some of the speeches, you know, there, there was a lot of murmuring in the crowd. And first of all, I'd never heard great oratory. You know, I did not grow up in a, going to a Baptist church where you have 
a black preacher and those kinds of oratorical skills. Now, not every preacher is going to have Martin Luther King skills, but I'd, I'd never really heard great oratory before that. And clearly, what I witnessed was someone who was very good at it. You know, he was, he, and the more I found out about the speech, the, the more I, I realized what a tremendous accomplishment. I mean, the first part of the speech he had written out and, and it, it was quite good, but the extemporaneous part was what everybody remembered. And, you know, the, the idea of being in front of 200,000 people and suddenly deciding, oh, well, I'm going to wing it from, here on in. You know, I, I finished my prepared text, but there's more I have to say, and here goes. And for someone, for any normal person, that would have been a choice that you just would not take, you know, a risk that you would not take. But for someone as an experienced orator as he was, uh, he was able to, to do that. Uh, stepping away from the personal experience of, of hearing it, t- tell us what you've learned about the speech, how it was written, um, the drafting process, the intentions for the speech, all, all the things that you would have come across in your research. Well, you're talking about two different things. One of them, there are really two speeches. One of them is the prepared speech. And I've learned a lot about that, that he worked on it. He came to New York about a month before the march. Uh, moved into the house that Clarence Jones, who worked with me for about 10 years at, at Stanford, he was his legal advisor, and he had a home in New York. And he agreed to uh, move out of his home and, and give it to the King family in the month before the march. So he's told me a lot about his his own role in terms of drafting the speech. He said that you know he didn't write it, he gave some suggestions, other people gave suggestions, but he brought together a lot of these suggestions because he knew that the speech had to be short. You know, this was not a day when you could uh, give a one-hour speech. He, were, he was assigned, I think, seven to eight minutes, something, something along those lines. So you're trying to pack a lot into seven to eight minutes. And it went through a number of drafts, and he was working on it even in the night before the march because he had to give a a draft for the press so that was not prepared until the morning of this of the march and it was distributed to the press and we have that so that was the prepared speech the extemporaneous speech which is what everybody remembers most was developed over a period of time you know the different pieces of it came from different sources you know, for example, the uh, the end where he goes on about uh, from every mountainside, let freedom ring. Well, you know, that was something that he borrowed and adapted from his friend Archibald Carey, a minister in Chicago. He, uh, he worked that into his oratory. There are many other parts of the speech where he's trying out ideas. He had always worked on this idea of the American dream. From the 1950s on, he's talking about the American dream. And somewhere during 1962, he, and I've heard of some stories about how he heard a, a young woman give a speech about, I have a dream. And at some point, he be- began to say, I have a dream. And that automatically made it a much more powerful speech. It was not some abstract American dream. It was his dream. 
and he could own it. He could talk about it in terms of, you know, he talks about his children growing up in a land where they would be judged by the content of their character but rather than the color of their skin. Well, you know, if you're talking about your own children, you know, then the speech becomes much more personal. And and this is after his letter from Birmingham jail, where it's another, you know, it's an essay, but it has that personal tone of here, here I am, I'm speaking to you, and I'm, I'm speaking on behalf of black people, but I'm putting it in, in a personal context. And I think that's what makes that, that essay so powerful, is that he, he does talk about his children. He talks about his thoughts and his disappointment. So he's taking abstract ideas and giving them more emotional power by talking about it in terms of his own life, his own feelings, his own dream. You know, so it's not just the American dream, it's my dream. It's a really famous opening, the one that locates it at the Lincoln Memorial and uses Lincoln's words from Gettysburg as an allusion. And it says that America has defaulted on the promissory note of the Declaration of Independence. Um, that was obviously part of the written part of the speech. Have you had a sense from Clarence Jones as to how this bad check metaphor unfolded? Yeah, he takes credit for it. <laughs> he said, you know, I threw that in because he was he was the first, I, I think the first black person to have, uh, to, to be on Wall Street. So he had, you know, he, he was a lawyer, but he, he worked in that in that area. And, you know, he tells the story about how when uh, the Birmingham campaign, which was a few months earlier, he needed money. You know, so he was assigned to go to New York and pick up money from Chase, Man- Chase the Chase Bank, you know, that the Rockefellers owned. And he was able to <laughs> go into the, you know, he tells, you know, he's told me this story a number of times about how he went in on a Saturday and one of the Rockefellers was, was there with him as he went into the vault. And he starts putting money into a satchel. And it turns out it's, it, I think it was $250,000, something like that. And has uh, Clarence sign a promissory note. And the, the note was uh, that he was basically loaned this money on demand so that if someone demanded the money back, he would have to pay it. And so, of course, he was a little bit reluctant to to do that because, you know, personally, he didn't have that kind of money. But he, he went ahead and, <laughs> yeah. and uh, they said it would, it would be okay. And sure enough, canceled the note after after a while. But but I think maybe, maybe that experience of having signed a promissory note yourself might have encouraged him to put that in because that, that metaphor of the promissory note, I think, is 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 a very apt one, and it's uh, you know it's right at the beginning of the speech, so it, it really sets the tone of of how the American dream, the American promise, has not been fulfilled. And the ad lib wouldn't work as well without this foundation. I mean, a line like "America has given the Negro people a bad check, a check which has come back marked insufficient funds." You know, it's clever, it's emotional, and as you say, it just sets the tone for where we're going to go. Yeah, it's so uh, 
condensed. It gets to the point quickly. There's there's hardly a wasted word uh, in that first part of it, and that that gives him the freedom to to go off on a kind of more visionary tone in, in the last part of the speech. So then he does the now is the time, and it, to me it feels like there are little chapters, little mini chapters in the speech because he loved repetition so much that he'd grab on to a a riff and, and the now I think of the next bit as the now is the time riff. Do, do you have any thoughts on, on that little bit? Yeah, well, again, I, I link that back to the letter from Birmingham jail because he's responding to these clergy who are saying, you know, this is unwise and untimely. You know, it's the classic response of a moderate to someone who is an activist. You know, you, you've got to go more slowly. You, you know, we can't can't change the world overnight. And so he responds to that by saying, you can always say, wait. That's the easy response to any demand for change. You know, just wait. And then he goes into why we can't wait. And to me, that's the heart of the of the essay. And that's the heart of what was going on at that time. Because, you know, the, in 1963, Birmingham was only one of many mass protests that were going on in the United States. In Chicago, 100,000 people marching. In New York, sim- similar. Um, when King went and gave speeches during the spring and summer of that year, you know, he would he would fill baseball parks, you know, and uh, and he would just draw these huge audiences. And so it was quite clear to anyone watching the struggle or involved in the struggle that we were not patient anymore. This this was. We want it, and we want it now. Why we can't wait? That's that was the title of the book he wrote the next year, trying to explain to people we've been waiting for a hundred years for the realization of the Emancipation Proclamation or the realization of the Fourteenth uh, and Fifteenth Amendments to the Constitution, that, which supposedly gave us the right to vote and, and equal rights. So these had been a hundred years. So this was the year of the celebration of the 100th anniversary of the Emancipation Proclamation. And for most black Americans, things that were not moving along rapidly enough. In speaking about the urgency, he also discusses how it should happen. And nonviolence um, is an important part of that. How would that have been received by you at the time, Dr. Carson, and even people like Stokely Carmichael, would they have heard his words as too moderate? Would, there have been, would this have been quite a, a contentious part of the speech for the audience? No, not, not at all. Um, at, at, at the time in 1963, um, you know, the, the movement was still very much in the mode of nonviolence. Stokely Carmichael might have been more militant in some ways, and I became more militant in some ways, but we still kept to nonviolence now. The young people in the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee might have used it more aggressively. And what militancy meant then was the willingness to use nonviolence to its ultimate effectiveness. And, and that meant not doing it necessarily politely, you know, uh, and not waiting for the right moment and doing it 
insistently. Maybe someone like a, a Malcolm X at that point might be, but he even was not calling for violence. He was calling for self-defense. But the the radicalization of the movement was was really a year or two off from then. You know, by 1964, 1965, there were more people putting forward the notion that we're not going to get anywhere until we start using more aggressive means, self-defense. And and then by 1966, when you get the Black Power slogan, you get the formation of the Black Panther Party and other groups like that. Yeah, then then we're, the movement went to a different stage. He says we cannot walk alone, and he makes reference to the non-African American who are helping in the movement, and he also congratulates the courage of the African American people in the audience who have made it, and that's the go back to Mississippi, go back to Alabama, go back to South Carolina. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is just the orator's trick, I guess, of of getting people on side. Yeah, well, um, you know, when we think back at the March on Washington, what was striking was uh, not only the large number of black people there, but the large number of white people who attended. And that was part of what the movement had achieved during the previous three years, is, is that for many young white kids, you know, who were my age, the movement was the most exciting thing happening in their life too. And they wanted to be part of it. And, and they were, you know, the, the freedom writers were not all black people. Some of them were white. A significant number of them were white. The Mississippi summer project or, you know, the volunteers who came South were mostly white because they were the ones who could afford to spend the summer in, in Mississippi. And, and, uh, you know, I thought about going, but, if I didn't work during the summer, I was not going back to, to college in the fall. That was There was no way of getting around that. But I think for, for many white students, that's what they did during the summer of 64 and even 1965 when there was a, uh, another voting rights campaign uh, led by the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. So it was part of that, that period in the mid-1960s and again, I would see that, that there's a parallel with the Black Lives Matter protests, where in many communities, as many or more white protesters responded to the murder of George Floyd as, as black protesters. Tell us about the, the hinge, I guess, between the written and the ad lib. How, how does this moment happen? And how, how does he make the decision? Is it a decision that's truly made on the fly? Is it possible that he looked at the speech beforehand and said, maybe I can dive off here. I, I think he did have a few hours um, where he could think about that. I understand from Clarence Jones that I think uh, Baird Rustin, who was the organizer of the march, talked to him that morning and said, you know, Martin, we have only given you seven seven minutes to talk, but if you need a few minutes more, feel free to take it. You're the last person on the, on the program. So I think he understood that if he made that choice to go and d- deliver additional remarks after his prepared remarks, that first of all, that would be okay, that no one was going to, to try. You know, I can't imagine somebody in the middle of his oration 
coming up and, and saying, uh, Martin, you're exceeding your time now. You know, he, he was the main speaker, and, and I think he had that freedom. And because other people kept to their, their time limit, there was, it, it wasn't like the march was running late. If it was behind schedule, it wasn't that far behind schedule. So he, he understood that he, he, could, he could say a few words if he wanted to, a few words extra. Is it true that, that it was a call from the stage behind him? The, the Mahalia Jackson story, I guess I'm getting at, is, is it true that it came from her, that this prompting, this call out from one of the speakers behind him? Well, you know, I've heard that story and Clarence swears by it um, and he was there and I wasn't. I have a feeling that it's it's one of those things where it might not have happened exactly the way they described it because I think, you know, there was a microphone in front of Martin Luther King. So if someone during his speech had yelled out, the microphone would have picked it up and we would have some recording of that happening. But what might have happened is that she might have said it as he was walking to the to the podium. You know, it, it's 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 one of those controversies, and and I I kind of go with what I can prove. Uh, but on the other hand, these other people who were on the stage say that it happened, but the microphone doesn't verify that. Let's put it that way, and uh, I. I remember uh, when I was interviewing um, Clarence about this, and and right there he said, you know, look, you know, I was there, this happened, and how am I going to question that? And and, and just to clarify, what does Clarence say happened? That um, Mahalia Jackson yelled out, um, "Tell him about your dream, Martin," and or something along those lines, and uh, that that inspired. And him. so this is to give his dream oration. That was a speech, I, I understand. That, that was a speech that he delivered previously and, and maybe more than once. It was... Yes, yes. When, when Mahalia is, is... So if Mahalia is asking for that, she sort of knows what she's going to get. She's heard it before. Is that right? Yeah, he had given a speech in Detroit um, where he spoke to another very large audience, um, clearly over 100,000, maybe close to 200,000 people. And so he has an oration fairly similar to that in the Detroit speech. And as I mentioned the previous year, he gives another speech in Rocky Mountain, North Carolina, where there's a lot of similarities between the Rocky Mountain speech and, uh, and the Iowa Dream speech, at least the endings of them. So I, I think the best way of describing it is that he had been working on this, uh, I guess, the, the, this mini-speech. I have a dream on that theme. He had found that it it resonated with with audiences and and of course when we look back at some of the components of it, you know, as I mentioned, he borrowed it, uh, some of the phrases from his friend uh, Archibald Carey. And uh, ministers, when they see other ministers do something that uh, is effective, they they adapt it. And <laughs> I guess we don't call it plagiarism; we just call it recognizing a, a good oratorical option. Yeah, and, and as, I, as I mentioned also, he had delivered speeches about the American dream. So I think he's taking 
bits and pieces that he's worked on before and turning it into something that is, I think it's effective because it's very concise and it's a rousing conclusion to the speech. It's incredibly concise. When you think that most of us, if we're trying to find words, will um or ah or think or pause. I mean, he's flying with fluency. And some of the words, you know, he uses words like interposition and nullification. And speakers often avoid those long words and multisyllabic words because it's hard to get your lips around them. And yet these incredibly rapid-fire, multisyllabic words are pouring out of him. It's, um, it's an incredible act of skill. I mean, that goes without saying when you're talking about one of the speeches of the 20th century, but, you know, it is soaring stuff, isn't it? Yes, it is, and, and I, I think that that's... Uh, I mean, one of the things that's, that's not unique but um, very unusual among Baptist ministers is that here is a person who, who wrote a... PhD dissertation on theology and grew up in a climate where, you know, his father was a skilled preacher. Uh, just down the street, there was another another prominent minister, very skilled in the pul- pulpit. There were those people who were both skilled orators, but also intellectuals. And one thing you yeah. find about King is that he can throw these you know, references in. He will quote bits and pieces, and and they'll and they'll be these riffs, and and when he'll refer to, I guess what I would call the classic texts of the Western tradition. Yeah. So so I think because of that, his speeches have more authority. You know, King wanted to appeal to both the intellect and the emotions. And that was his great skill. That, that set him apart from many other ministers who could, who could give a, a good sermon and, and get the congregation to respond emotionally, but the intellectual content wasn't there. And others would be <coughs> simply the intellectual content without the emotion, but King could do both. And... That, that did set him apart. He absolutely could, and, and you hear it throughout, whether he's quoting Langton Hughes or whether he's quoting the Bible or whether he's quoting Gandhi or whether he's quoting song lyrics or he just had an enormous repertoire of phrases and lyrics that he knew well. And, and, and he also had a singer's ability to find notes as well. I think... Now, anyone who's trying to learn to speak, it's almost like a lesson. Don't try and be Martin Luther King because you'll sound ridiculous if you're trying to, to find that musicality. You know, that level of musicality is foreign to the average speaker. And yet he, he managed it because of, you know, I guess their almost natural gifts or at least their developed gifts that come, come from the pulpit. Well, of growing up, again, around skilled preachers. And having the the ability to bring together his intellectual knowledge, his his school knowledge, his knowledge of theology, his knowledge of philosophy. This was a person who took courses in theology and philosophy, and he got, had a great memory for it. You know, a lot of people take courses and forget most of what they learned, but if he 
he saw uh, a, a thought that impressed itself on his mind, and he was not shy about uh, ad- adopting it and adapting it for his own purposes. It just gave him a, a wide vocabulary that could move from you know, ordinary language to you know, elevated intellectual language, I guess I would put it. You know, he's, he's speaking to a congregation that might not have ever read a book about theology, but he's breaking it down so that it makes sense to them. And he, and he finishes off, I have a dream, with the theological references, the... Let freedom ring. Yeah, that, yeah let freedom ring. That's the part from um, Archibald Carey. You know, this, the, the whole thing of let freedom ring from all these places. And, it, and it, it has the impact of bringing the country together, of, of saying, you know, we need, to, we need to let freedom ring from Lookout Mountain in Tennessee, from Stone Mountain in, in Atlanta where the Ku Klux Klan had organized. And it's, it's, it's interesting to hear him start in the north and then he does three or four let freedom rings in, in the north and in the cities and then he goes to, but not only that. Yes. And then he, he, he links the two, the, the south where, you know, this is where it now has to ring as well. I mean, not, I know the cities weren't free and he says that in the first half of the speech as well, but... It, it is powerful, isn't it? Those three words, and, and not only or four words, not only that. Yes, yes. And what about the, in some ways, the I Have a Dream speech has become this universally loved piece of writing, oratory. Um, and yet, to some extent, it's not representative of, of his more strident speakings. And, and, I, and I'm thinking here of something like his his speech beyond Vietnam um, where he talks about you know, a time to break silence or even the, the speech at the very end of his life, the I have been to the mountaintop. He's, it's just a lot more, it would be less palatable to a general wide audience. Do you have sort of a feelings of, of, of what you think of something like the I have a dream speech? Do you, do you think it's, it's become sort of sugar coated or something in its, um, in its, in the way that it's resonated in American and, and world life? I don't know about sugar-coated, but it, you know, it represents one stage of his life uh, where he was trying to bring together the largest audience he would address during his lifetime. And he was, at, he was near the peak of his popularity also. And these speeches helped build that popularity. And the following year, he wins the Nobel Peace Prize. But after that point, his popularity goes down. You know, he begins to get in, in, uh, involved in the Chicago campaign, the voting rights march, and, and then later, you know, the, when he launches the Poor People's Campaign. So I think what happens is that his speeches become, I think, are just as good uh, I mean, the Vietnam speech is, is, a, is a great speech, but, but he's, he's not doing the same thing he was doing. He, what he says at the March on Washington should have been uncontroversial. And, and for the audience, it wasn't controversial. But what he says when he attacks the war in Vietnam is definitely controversial. And he is 
trying to convince people. So that is, uh, you know, that's a whole different task. And oratory is not going to, you know, if somebody disagrees with your basic thesis, they're not going to be convinced by great oratory. And you're probably not going to use great oratory. You're, you're, you're trying to make an argument and persuade. And that's a different, different kind of task. Um, I think I think Vietnam's speech is a, is a great speech, but it's not it's not. First of all, it's much longer, and it's much more argumentative, and it doesn't have those those flourishes of uh, visionary prose. And 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 his final speech in in Memphis, that's a great speech also because we know that he did not plan to give it. So in some ways, it, it's uh, it's long and rambling, and but it, it it also touches on a lot of topics. And I think in the end, he's trying to place himself in the stream of history. You know, where where does where does the movement fit? And uh, that's a different kind of oratory altogether. It's a beautiful and, and incredible speech. You know, and as you say, it's got quite interesting and strange diversions in it the the if i sneezed section about when he'd been stabbed and the and the bit about traveling through history yeah. and deciding still to belong to the age that he belongs to and, and there's also a melancholy to it in the sense that it feels as though he wonders how long his life's going to be and i imagine he's receiving death threats at the at the time and, and the, the tragedy is that he dies the next day but you know i've been to the mountaintop which we have a little snippet of that in the theme to this podcast it's just uh and because he's ad living like i have a dream it's it's this in, incredible um ability he had to i think elevate himself when he was off script um and and so you know that's a personal favorite of mine yeah, yeah, and I, I, I really like some of his sermons, like Unfulfilled Dreams, you know, because I know I can see him speaking to his own congregation, and it's, it's a very self-revealing sermon. You know, he has that line in it, you know, I'm a sinner like all of God's children, and I, I just want God to say, but he tried. And, you know, so he... As he's reaching the end of his life, you know, there is that very reflective tone in some of his sermons and speeches. Well, Dr. Carson, tell us about the the job that you've had, the awesome responsibility you've really had for uh, 35 years. <laughs> I can't say that all of it has been fun, but it it's always been instructive. It's always been inspiring in some ways. I, I think back of how naive I was about how how long it would take to bring together the papers of Martin Luther King and finding all these hundreds of thousands of documents that relate to Martin Luther King's life and then deciding which of them are worthy of being included. That that's a big task and, and uh you know, the irony is that he you know, his life only lasted thirty nine years and it's gonna take more than 39 years for us to edit and publish his papers. Well, I read somewhere from 1957 to 1968, Martin Luther King Jr. traveled 6 million miles, spoke more than 2,500 times and wrote five books. And, and it's been your job, Dr. Carson, to uh, somehow build volumes out of that. Has it been seven volumes so far? 
Seven volumes so far. We're working on volume eight right now. He related to so many people in so many different contexts from all over the world. Well, you've done very well to embark upon it and commit your life to it. And uh, faith is taking the first step, even when you don't see the whole staircase, to quote Dr. King. Uh, and I definitely <laughs> is there a, the first step. What's it been like spending your life with him in this way? I mean, what's, what's, what's he meant to you or what's he come to mean to you over time? I, I, th- I think that I've just come to appreciate him for all that he was and all that he tried to be. And, and it also leads me to see so many other people. You know, like uh, I'm going to be doing a, an online course in the spring, uh, actually starting next month. And it's a course I've been doing online for a while. It's called An, an American Prophet. But this time I want to work Coretta more into the story because it occurred to me that you know, she spent 16 years with Martin, and together they were a team, and they, she played a subordinate role to him during those 16 years, and, and of course he accomplished a great deal during that, that period. But in the next 16 years, Coretta was more responsible than perhaps any other person to making Martin Luther King a person who was extremely at the low ebb of his popularity at the time of his assassination. But 16 years later, she had created the King National Holiday. So in a sense, what we memorialize with King is less what he actually did, because I think that's imperfectly understood. But, you know, he, he obviously accomplished a lot. But we wouldn't have a King National Holiday today without Coretta. So, so I think that we need to take another look at, at their lives. And, and, and Coretta is the person I, I knew for the last 20 years of her life. And I think that she needs to be acknowledged. She didn't come from nothing. You know, there was a Coretta King who was, uh, you know, just one way of putting it. I, and I'll, I'll do this in the class is just say, you know, and when they met, Coretta had been a delegate to a National Progressive Party convention. Martin Luther King at that time had never even voted. Yeah. He wasn't old enough. So she knew people like Bayard Rustin and Paul Robeson and some of the heroic figures of that era of the late 40s and early 50s. Martin Luther King was unfamiliar with these people. When Bayard Rustin comes to Montgomery, she's the one who introduces him to Martin because Martin hasn't heard of him. And he's the guy who organizes the March on Washington. Yeah. One of the things I found out is that she has her own FBI file, quite apart from Martin, because the FBI was concerned about her peace activities. You know, she was a member of a group called Women's International Strike for Peace. So she's taking stands on the Vietnam War years before Martin does. And public stands, making speeches um, mentioning the Vietnam War. So I think that she has many women you know, of that era who make the deal that the man's career has priority, that they have to prioritize staying home with the kids. Yeah, so... She becomes, for 16 years, her identity is Mrs. King. 
But before and after that 16-year stretch, which is a relatively small part of her life, she's Coretta King, her own woman, and building an institution that is um, still around, building a national holiday that is still celebrated. And a great speaker in her own right. I mean, she, she gave a speech after his death, only weeks, I think, after his death. It's a, a really amazing and beautiful and, and important speech. Given that must have been racked by grief at the time, it was a, a great speech. And then, and then she um, also gave a speech, I think, over... Well, she visited Indira Gandhi in, um, in India and gave a good speech as well, I think. Yes, she did. She went to India soon after Martin's assassination... She went to the Philippines after the revolution there, Aquino, and she went to South Africa you know, after the anti-apartheid movement. You know, and she was arrested during the anti-apartheid protests along with her kids in Washington. So um, you know, there's a lot to, to look at there. And, and I think it, it helps provide a context for understanding that King probably would not have accomplished as much as he did if he had not had a supportive supportive wife who was not only supportive but very eager to involve herself. She she wanted to join him in jail in, in Albany, Georgia. And only the fact that she had to take care of four kids kind of delayed her interest in, into the movement. But she was she was ready to move with him to Chicago for the Chicago campaign. And she marched from Selma to Montgomery. And, you know, so, so all of these things are, are part of both of their lives. What was the phone call? Was it out of the blue when, she, when Coretta King called you in 1985? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I had known about she was starting the King Papers Project because I was actually asked to by the, the federal agency that funded it, you know, like, what did I think of it? And I basically said, it's a wonderful project. It'd be interesting to see who might be the director of it. Maybe a few months after that, I got this surprise phone call from her, and she asked me to do it. And you know, I w- I was actually skeptical at first that you know the idea of you know from a phone call saying, "Would you mind spending it the rest of your life doing this?" And <laughs> it you know, it was just not something I'd thought about. And, and also she wanted somebody who would be willing to move to Atlanta, and I wasn't willing to do that. You know, my kids were in the schools here in Palo Alto, California. So it took a while, you know, to, to make that decision. But, but once I made it, you know, I, <laughs> you know we, we had our, you know, uh, it, it wasn't always a smooth ride. There was, there was, we had our disagreements about certain things. And one thing I found out about her is that she was a very strong-willed person. Uh, I think one thing she found out about me is that I'm also a very strong-willed person. So sometimes we, uh, we, we had our, our arguments, but I never failed to lose my respect for her. And I hope the same was true on her side. And just to finish off with, um, I believe that over at the Research and Education Centre that Clarence Jones has also been on staff there and, and a colleague, He's been a co-author. He's been a colleague for about 10 years, and then he went off to uh, form his own institute at, at the University of San Francisco. So that happened about five or six, maybe five years ago. 
and but we we worked together for about 10 years so if we're looking at the written part of the speech he's the accredited co-author what's it meant what do you think it meant to him to be associated with that speech and what did what did he used to say about it I think he was very proud of his his role and he he makes it clear that he didn't originate the ideas of the speech his job was to try to bring together the ideas that other people were suggesting you know Martin Luther King had a big burden on his on his head you know in terms of trying to to say something that was kind of represented his organization and represented the movement well uh he had to be something that was very insistent even militant but also not upset the other people who were involved in the march that ability to, to find that middle ground where he could say you know we we want our freedom and we want it now but also make it very clear that he, this was in the context of nonviolence and that his commitment to nonviolence was was un, uncompromising and 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 that's the role both he and Coretta played is that they represented a broader movement i think both of them were strongly firmly committed to nonviolence but i think they also were insistent about the need for in some ways radical change i think both of them were ultimately socialistic in their ideas you know one of the things that I'll talk about in in the class next quarter is the way you know, Coretta sent him a book called Looking Backward by Edward Bellamy. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but uh it was a book written in the 19th century in the 1880s. It's kind of a fantasy about a guy who falls asleep in the 1880s and wakes up in the year 2000 and the United States is a socialist country. Yeah. not because of a revolution not because of it being imposed from the outside but actually because Americans made the decision to do that and the audience for the book was mostly religious people you know who were mm. part of what was called the social gospel movement and it was a, a bestseller back in the 1880s now the fact that Coretta would give Martin a copy of this book and ask for his response to it you know kind of says a lot about their relationship it wasn't you know you might have expected the other way around that martin would give her something to read to bring her up to speed and she's suggesting this book to him and this is within months of their of their meeting and we have this wonderful letter from martin uh, thanking her for the book and and talking about how the ideas in the book are very much along his lines and he and he says you know that uh, this is the gospel i will preach to the world when he finished his free at last to conclude i have a dream you'd said you'd been worried about getting out there and finding the bus what did happen to you clay trying to get home to to new mexico i never did find the bus yeah it was just impossible after there was just too much crowd around and and of course i had no sense about where things were in washington and uh so as the evening was moving on i i remember uh, some people on a bus said you know look we have some extra seat an extra seat there in the bus so i got a ride with these people from new york so the evening of the after the march on washington i uh arrived maybe about midnight at 
Penn Station in New York. And with very little money in my pocket, I had heard about Harlem, so I wanted to go there. So I got there, and uh, fortunately enough, I, I was able to uh, find uh, someone willing to put me up for the night, you know, in return for some of my remaining funds. And, uh, and then I had a bus ticket back from Indiana to New Mexico, so I used that ticket to go from New York to Indiana and then hitch my way across the country, you know, we're about 2,000 miles across the middle of America by myself with my thumb out and uh, managed to get back home. And you can say you saw I Have a Dream live, Dr. Carson, and, and many of us who've loved the speech would, would are very jealous of that. Um, thank you so much for sharing your personal memories of it and also your academic thoughts in relation to such a significant moment in world history. Well, thanks, um, and appreciated being on your show. Usually this is the time where I introduce the speech of the week, but really we're saying speech of the week, speech of the year, speech of the decade, speech of the century, speech of all time. Here it is from 1963. The great Martin Luther King with I Have a Dream. Five score years ago, a great American in whose symbolic shadow we stand today signed the Emancipation Proclamation. This momentous decree came as a great beacon light of hope to millions of Negro slaves who had been seared in the flames of withering injustice. It came as a joyous daybreak to end the long night of their captivity. But 100 years later, the Negro still is not free. 100 years later, the life of the Negro is still sadly crippled by the manacles of segregation and the chains of discrimination. 100 years later, the Negro lives on a lonely island of poverty in the midst of a vast ocean of material prosperity. 100 years later, the Negro is still languished in the corners of American society and finds himself in exile in his own land. And so we've come here today to dramatize a shameful condition In a sense, we've come to our nation's capital to cash a check. When the architects of our republic wrote the magnificent words of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, they were signing a promissory note to which every American was to fall heir. This note was a promise that all men Yes, black men as well as white men would be guaranteed the unalienable rights of life, liberty, 
and the pursuit of happiness. It is obvious today that America has defaulted on this promissory note insofar as her citizens of color are concerned. Instead of honoring this sacred obligation, America has given the Negro people a bad check, a check which has come back marked insufficient funds. But we refuse to believe that the Bank of Justice is bankrupt. We refuse to believe that there are insufficient funds in the great vaults of opportunity of this nation. And so we've come to cash this check, a check that will give us upon demand the riches of freedom and the security of justice. We have also come to this hallowed spot to remind America of the fierce urgency of now. This is no time to engage in the luxury of cooling off or to take the tranquilizing drug of gradualism. Now is the time to make real the promises of democracy. Now is the time to rise from the dark and desolate valley of segregation to the sunlit path of racial justice. Now is the time to lift our nation from the quicksands of racial injustice to the solid rock of brotherhood. Now is the time make justice a reality for all of God's children. It would be fatal for the nation to overlook the urgency of the moment. This sweltering summit of the Negro's legitimate discontent will not pass until there is an invigorating autumn of freedom and equality. 1963 is not an end, but a beginning. Those who hope that the Negro needed to blow off steam and will now be content will have a rude awakening if the nation returns to business as usual. There will be neither rest nor tranquility in America until the Negro is granted his citizenship rights. The whirlwinds of revolt will continue to shake the foundations of our nation until the bright day of justice emerges. But that is something that I must say to my people who stand on the warm threshold which leads into the palace of justice In the process of gaining our rightful place, we must not be guilty of wrongful deeds. Let us not seek to satisfy our thirst for freedom by drinking from the cup of bitterness and hatred.
We must forever conduct our struggle on the high plane of dignity and discipline. We must not allow our creative protest to degenerate into physical violence. Again and again, we must rise to the majestic heights of meeting physical force with soul force. The marvelous new militancy which has engulfed the Negro community must not lead us to a distrust of all white people. For many of our white brothers, as evidenced by their presence here today, have come to realize that their destiny is tied up with our destiny. They have come to realize that their freedom is inextricably bound to our freedom. We cannot walk alone. And as we walk, we must make the pledge that we shall always march ahead. We cannot turn back. There are those who are asking the devotees of civil rights, when will you be satisfied? We can never be satisfied as long as the Negro is the victim of the unspeakable horrors of police brutality. We can never be satisfied. As long as our bodies, heavy with the fatigue of travel, cannot gain lodging in the motels of the highways and the hotels of the cities. We cannot be satisfied as long as the Negro's basic mobility is from a smaller ghetto to a larger one. We can never be satisfied as long as our children are stripped of their selfhood and robbed of their dignity by signs stating for whites only. We cannot be satisfied as long as a Negro in Mississippi cannot vote and a Negro in New York believes he has nothing for which to vote. No, no, we are not satisfied and we will not be satisfied until justice rolls down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. I am not my unmindful that some of you have come here out of great trials and tribulations. Some of you have come fresh from narrow jail cells. Some of you have come from areas where your quest for freedom left you battered by the storms of persecution. Yes and staggered by the winds of police brutality. You have been the veterans of creative suffering. Continue to work with the faith that unearned suffering is redemptive. Go back to Mississippi. Go back to Alabama. Go back to South Carolina. Go back to Georgia. Go back to Louisiana. Go back to the slums and ghettos of our northern cities, yes. knowing that somehow this situation can and will be changed. Yes. 
Let us not wallow in the valley of despair. I say to you today, my friends, So even though we face the difficulties of today and tomorrow, I still have a dream. Yes. It is a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream that one day even the state of Mississippi, a state sweltering with the heat of injustice, sweltering with the heat of oppression, will be transformed into an oasis of freedom and justice. I have a dream. My four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day down in Alabama, with its vicious racists, with its governor having his lips dripping with the words of interposition and nullification. One day right there in Alabama, little black boys and black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and white girls as sisters and brothers. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day every valley shall be exalted. And every hill and mountain shall be made low. The rough places will be made plain. And the crooked places will be made straight. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together. This is our hope. This is a faith that I go back to the south with. With this faith. We will be able to hew out of the mountain of despair a stone of hope. With this faith, we will be able to transform the jangling discords of our nation into a beautiful symphony of brotherhood. With this faith, we will be able to work together, to pray together, to struggle together, to go to jail together, to stand up for freedom together, knowing that we will be free one day. This will be the day, this will be the day when all of God's children will be able to sing with new meaning, my country tears of thee. Sweet land of liberty of thee I sing, land where my fathers died, land of the pilgrim's pride. 
from every mountainside. Let freedom ring, and if America is to be a great nation, this must become true. And so let freedom ring from the prodigious hilltops of New Hampshire. Let freedom ring from the mighty mountains of New York. Let freedom ring from the heightening Alleghenies of Pennsylvania. Let freedom ring from the snow-capped Rockies of Colorado. Let freedom ring from the curvaceous slopes of California. But not only that, let freedom ring from Stone Mountain of Georgia. Let freedom ring from Lookout Mountain of Tennessee. Let freedom ring from every hill and mole hill of Mississippi, from every mountainside. Let freedom ring, and when this happens, and when we allow freedom ring, when we let it ring from every village and every hamlet, from every state and every city, we will be able to speed up that day when all of God's children, black men and white men, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics, will be able to join hands and sing in the words of the old Negro spiritual, free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty, we are free at last. Well, there it is, in its full and complete spine-tingling glory. And any voice that's going to come afterwards is going to sound like the concert MC telling you to pick up your belongings and make your way to the nearest exit, which is what I am here. But I do get to say the thank yous as well. And they are to Dr. Claiborne Carson. Thank you so much for your time. I loved doing the interview. I loved editing the interview. If you want to read any of Dr. Claiborne Carson's many and varied writings, both on Dr. King and on other matters related to civil rights. He's published literally dozens of works, so you can look them up under Claiborne Carson on Wikipedia. Thank you, as always, to Green Skin and Purple Skin Avocados, their website, greenskinavocados.com.au. Thank you to David Bridie. I've heard he's just got a posting to Antarctica. The great Melbourne musician David Bridie, who composed our theme song. And thank you to everyone who donated after the last podcast. I really appreciate that extra vote of support and if you want to do that you can go to speakola.com or look in the notes to this podcast i am tony wilson you can find my books and other works at tonywilson.com.au it's so wonderful to have got around to i have a dream it's such a speech and such a part of my life what a joy see you next time speak all.